Welcome to The Backpack, a podcast from Christ Community Church in Shelbyville, Kentucky. On The Backpack, we want to prepare you for the journey outside where following Jesus meets real life. Hey, welcome to The Backpack. I'm one of your hosts, Josiah, and this is The Canteen. This is one of our regular segments here where we feature sermons from the preaching ministry at Christ Community Church. This week, we continue in our study of the Gospel of Luke. DJ takes us through Jesus' baptism and then straight into the genealogy of Jesus that we read about in Luke chapter 3. This section of Luke often gets skipped over, but DJ helps us unpack what Luke is trying to tell us through it. Let's listen in as DJ brings us this week's message. morning. Welcome once again to Christ Community. Uh, as, we, as we think about the God who is writing the story, I am glad that he has written you into this place this morning, that our stories intersect, whether for the first time. Uh, if you're a first-time visitor, welcome. We're glad to have you with us. Hope we get to connect with you better over the course of the day. Or if it's your hundredth time here, God is weaving something together among the people who gather here for his glory, and I'm excited to be a part of it. Uh, my name is DJ. I'm usually the worship leader here, but this morning I get the privilege of opening up God's Word, leading us in our study of the Bible. So I want to invite you, if you've got a copy of the Bible with you, to turn with me to the book of Luke. Luke chapter 3, and we are going to be looking at verses 21 through 38 this morning, zeroing in on Jesus' baptism and genealogy. Now, Tommy said that word genealogy a couple times leading up, and I could feel the excitement building in the room. You guys are stoked, I know. So let, let's just jump right into it, and, and we're going to have a blast. No, I, in all seriousness, this is one of those texts that we're tempted just to kind of fast forward through, right? Like the credits in a movie. Um, but there's something here that is going to be good and beneficial and helpful and glorious for you as you walk with Jesus this morning. So let's find it together as we, as we get our minds wrapped around this text and what Luke is trying to communicate with us. I'm going to open with a question. It's a pretty big question. And the question is this, who are you? Who are you? Three very short, simple words. But a, a lot could be encompassed in that question, right? There's a lot of directions that you could go. Who are you? Now, usually when that question comes up, we want to just kind of run to a surface level explanation, right? Like, who am I? Maybe you answer with your job, or maybe you answer with your hobby, or maybe you answer with just something surfacey about the things that you do, right? We often define ourselves by what we do. Storytellers know that. Movie directors know that. Authors know that. And so a lot of times, a storyteller is going to introduce an important character to us by showing us what they do in those first few scenes. Watch the first few times a character comes on screen. Watch what they do. And in doing so, you'll find out how the storyteller wants to paint a picture of who this person is. Maybe you think of Indiana Jones in the very first scene of Raiders of the Lost Ark. And when we meet Indiana Jones, what do you see him doing? You see him cleverly dodging traps, figuring out puzzles. He does the cool little sandbag with the idol swap thing there. And then he's got to run for his life away from the giant rock. And there's a tribe chasing him. And you know, 15 minutes into this movie, that this is a guy who is clever, who is brilliant. He's an adventurer. He's always a step ahead of trouble, but only one step ahead of trouble. You have a good idea of who Dr. Jones is 15 minutes in. Maybe you think of Heath Ledger's Joker in The Dark Knight 
where we meet him in the opening scenes orchestrating this really intricate bank robbery. And over the course of the bank robbery, he eliminates the group of goons who are helping them do this, ensuring that when everything is over, there's no one he has to share the money with. And in the opening 15 minutes of this movie, we understand something about this guy. We realize that Batman's new nemesis we're about to see is as ruthless as he is clever. Storytellers paint a picture by showing us what do these characters do as a window into who they are. But while what we do shapes part of our identity, certainly, it doesn't really go deep enough, does it? When I ask you, who are you? How do you answer that question in your most quiet and reflective moments when you're alone with your thoughts? How will you answer that question on your deathbed when reflections on your job or your hobbies or your accomplishments seem trite, empty? I've heard it said that who are you is one of four big questions that we all have to answer And the way we answer those four big questions shapes the way we answer every other question in our lives. Those four questions are this. Who am I? Or who are you? Who am I? Where did I come from? Where am I going? Why does it matter? All of us have to figure out what are my answers to those four questions because it's going to determine everything about my life. My sense of self, my sense of where I came from, my sense of what this life is about, where I'm going, why does it all matter? That's going to drive the way I live. It's going to shape my priorities, where I spend my time, the things that I value and invest in. And so taken on that level, at that degree of depth, who are you? When you whittle your identity down to its very core and essence, What is it that shapes your sense of self? Well, we're gathered here this morning as people who profess Jesus as the core foundation of our identity. Right? We are here as Christ Community Church. Right? Jesus has set, we have put his name on us as a collective group on what we do, on how we go out. We are representing him. We are his ambassadors in the world. Our mission statement that you've heard us say is to join Jesus in going out to make disciples. And so the things that we we do, we're saying we're attaching to Jesus more so even than to us. We are defined more by Christ and what we do as a church is in response to who He is. We have made who Jesus is the defining distinctive of who we are. That, that's what we have done. As, that's who we are as we gather as a church family. And so that makes it really important that we actually ask the question, well, who is Jesus? If I'm defining who I am in light of who he is, then who is he? We've called our study of Luke's gospel certain about Christ. Because Luke is setting out to retell the story of Jesus' life so that his audience can have certainty about the things that they've believed, about the truths that they have invested their life in, about the one in whom they have found their identity. And here in chapter 3, we meet the grown-up adult Jesus for the very first time. 
Much like Indiana Jones and the Joker, this is the first scene that we are presented with. And I'm going to suggest to you that Luke is arranging things very specifically to tell us a couple big truths about who Jesus is that properly understood can change the way that we think about who am I and who are you. So let's read Luke 3, beginning in verse 21. Here we go. When all the people were baptized, Jesus also was baptized. As he was praying, heaven opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in a physical appearance like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. And as he began his ministry, Jesus was about 30 years old and was thought to be, buckle up, here we go, the son of Joseph, son of Heli, son of Mephat, son of Levi, son of Melchi, son of Janai, son of Joseph, son of Matthias, son of Amos, son of Nahum, son of Elsie, son of Nagai, son of Maath, son of Matthias, son of Simeon, son of Joash, son of Jodah, son of, son of Jonan, almost made it through without stumbling, son of Resa, son of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, son of Neri, son of Melchi, son of Adai, son of Kossum, son of Elmadam, son of Er, son of Joshua, son of Eleazar, son of Joram, son of Mephat, son of Levi, son of Simeon, son of Judah, son of Joseph, son of Janam, son of Eliakim, son of Maliah, son of Manah, son of Matatha, son of Nathan, son of David, son of Jesse, son of Obed, son of Boaz, son of Salmon, son of Mashan, son of Aminadab, son of Ram, son of Hezron, son of Perez, son of Judah, son of Jacob, son of Isaac, son of Abraham, son of Terah, son of Nahor, son of Sarug, son of Reu, son of Peleg, son of Eber, son of Shelah, son of Canaan, son of Arphaxad, son of Shem, son of Noah, son of Lamech, son of Methuselah, son of Enoch, son of Jared, son of Mahalalel, son of Canaan, son of Enos, son of Seth, son of Adam, son of God. Let's pray as we dive into this text this morning. Father, speak to us as we open your word. Make it live, give us life. And what we know not teach us, what we have not give us, what we are not, make us by the power of your Spirit, to the praise of your glorious grace. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so before we rattled off all those super fun names, those of you who are expectant parents, there's some gold in there. If you want to pick out some of those, our facts ad, I haven't met one yet, but you could be the first. Before we got into all the fun names, we look at Jesus coming forward for baptism. So rewind two weeks. If you were here a couple of weeks ago, uh, as we went through the first part of Luke chapter three, we talked about John the Baptist and his ministry of baptism that he was performing out in the wilderness by the banks of the Jordan River. And so Luke, having covered, here's what John's doing, here's what his baptism was about, here's the way he's preaching and interacting with the people who came, the crowds who came, Luke shifts here in verse 21 to what almost seems like a throwaway line, right? When all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized. 
So we've been watching everybody get baptized, and Luke says, oh yeah, and then Jesus was baptized too. Now on the one hand, as we look at these two verses, it might not seem like there's a whole lot to be gleaned by this account of Jesus' baptism. It's just two or three sentences, not a lot of detail. Most of the other gospel writers go into a lot more detail than Luke does here. But don't miss the significance that is packed into these two short verses. So for one, it's interesting to me that this account of Jesus' baptism is one of the events that is mentioned by all four gospel writers. Right? If you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, each of them is writing from a different perspective. Each of them finds different events more uh, compelling and, and includes those in their narrative, and they line up in some places. Everybody talks about Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. But there's not as many stories as you might think that all four of them include in their Gospels. This is one of them. By my count, it's only about 10 or 11 are, are the stories that all four of them mention. And of those 10 or 11, I would say about 60 to 70% are events surrounding the crucifixion and resurrection. So in terms of Jesus' earthly ministry, this is one of only three or four accounts that all four gospel writers mention. And if that's the case, that it stood out to all four of them in, in such a powerful way, then there's something we need to pick up here. There's something we need to notice and learn from this text. So what does Luke want us to know about Jesus' baptism? Well, first off, in that first sentence, he wants us to know that Jesus was also baptized along with all the people. Four letters in that word also, but a ton of significance. Jesus was also baptized. Jesus, in his baptism, identifies with us, with all of us, with the crowds who had gathered to hear John with the people who had flocked to the wilderness to hear this slightly odd character preach and proclaim about the coming Messiah. Now, the fact that Jesus would come and identify with those crowds by submitting to baptism might sound a little bit strange to us. It certainly sounded strange to John. In Matthew's Gospel, Matthew gives us a little more detail about this event than Luke does, Matthew says this in Matthew 3, 13, and 14. He says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. But John tried to stop him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and yet you come to me? Think about this. So we talked last week, about, or two weeks ago, about John's ministry was all about preparing the way. Preparing the way for Jesus, preparing the way for him to come onto the scene and do what prophecies had, had predicted for generations he would be about. And so now John has set the table and Jesus is here. Jesus is ready to step onto the scene and he comes down from Galilee to the Jordan with John. What would he do? Maybe, maybe he's going to give a speech, Right? Maybe he's going to have like a, 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 a big summit meeting with John where they will talk about, okay, here's how we're going to do this. And it would be all really formal and, and significant like a politician would. But what, what, does he, what does he actually do? No, he, he comes to be baptized by John. And that causes John to go, what? And that should cause us, based on what we heard about John's baptism a couple weeks ago, to say, wait, What? Because we learned two weeks ago as Blake looked at the ministry of John the Baptist that it was all about repentance. 
right? That's what baptism was for. That's why people were coming was, was to repent, to, to lay down their sin and prepare their hearts to receive the promised Messiah. That's why John called out the Pharisees with that great line, you brood of vipers, right? Knew how to build a crowd. He says, you've come here, but you have no intention in your heart of repenting. You're here for the show and the song and the dance. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Show me a changed heart in the way that you live and the way that you love others. It's all about repentance. And Jesus is the one person in the history of the world who doesn't need to repent for anything. Who isn't stained by the sin that has marked every single one of us going back to Adam. Listen to what it says in 2 Corinthians 5.21. Speaking about Jesus, it says, For our sake, God made Him to be sin who knew no sin, that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus had no sin. He took on our sin, but He had none of His own to account for. He had none of His own to repent of. And yet He comes and He's baptized. He comes and humbly identifies with us. In Matthew's Gospel, he responds to John's objection by saying, I am going to do this to fulfill all righteousness. To exercise humility. To identify with the people that I have come to save. And so John takes him and he he baptizes him. And so we see in this one word right here that Jesus also was baptized. that, That says something about him. That he came not to be the Savior standing far and above the people who he would rescue, but he gets down in the mud and he identifies with us. But Luke also wants us to know that Jesus' baptism reveals to us something else of his divine identity. If you will, this is a brief glimpse into a heavenly origin. This is Jesus far beyond what the people thought he would be. What does he say here? Verse 21, Jesus also was baptized, and as he was praying, heaven opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in a physical appearance like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Now, I've been to a lot of baptisms. I've seen a lot of baptisms. I ain't never seen this. Nobody has ever split the ceiling tiles over that place over there and had heaven open up and dove land and like this is not normal. This was a one-time occurrence in all of John's baptism, and I would argue it's a one-time occurrence in all of the millions and billions of baptisms that have followed. So Luke points this out to us to, to get across what truth. What is he trying to show us? Well, he's trying to show us that this is a picture of of Jesus's divinity, that he is a man like us, but he is so much more. The spirit descending in visible fashion is God saying, this is my beloved son. This is more than just a man, more than just another prophet, more than even the Messiah that you have in your head you're expecting. It's a mark that this is God, not just a man. But why a dove? You ever, you ever wonder that? Like, if the Holy Spirit is going to be made visible so that everyone can see as a symbol of God's presence with Jesus, why, why the dove? Why not fire, right? Fire's cool. 
And that's what he uses at, uh, on the apostles at Pentecost to demonstrate the power of the gospel going out through them to the very ends of the earth. Why, why not that? Why the dove? Well, the answer shows us something more about who Jesus is, and it calls back to an ancient prophecy of what the promised Savior would be like. Book of Isaiah, chapter 42, verses 1 through 3, is a text that the people of Jesus' day would have said, this is, this is about the promised Messiah. This is about the promised Savior. Listen to how it describes this one who would come. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. That's a strange conglomeration of statements, isn't it? He will bring forth justice to the nations. That sounds like somebody who's going to get stuff done. The kind of people that we imagine get stuff done are usually very powerful people. They're, they're type A's. They're aggressive. They are ones who, who just naturally gravitate to the front of a room. And yet, what Luke says, or I'm sorry, what Isaiah says is, he won't cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. That doesn't sound to me like, like the kind of person I would expect. And that's the way it landed for the Israelites. Right? They waited expectantly for one who would bring forth justice, powerful, mighty king, restore them to their independence and prominence. And yet they often forgot to look for a gentle ruler careful to sustain the most fragile plant and keep alight the weakest candle. And so the Spirit descends on him before a watching crowd, not in a flame of fire, but as a peaceful dove. And as the Spirit descends, the Father speaks, right? A voice came from heaven. Again, this has never happened when I've watched a baptism. Unless somebody's there with a microphone, there is no booming voice. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. It's another callback to Isaiah 42, right? My servant in whom my soul delights, the one in whom I am well pleased. You catch that connection. The people who were listening would have caught it. Those Pharisees who John was talking to last week, they would have caught it. This is a declaration from God the Father that this is my beloved Son. This is the One. This is the promised Messiah. The Father proclaims Jesus' divine Sonship for the crowd to hear, for John to see. He is the Anointed One, promised and prophesied for generations. And so at this point, even if we weren't privy to all the details of the virgin birth that we just explored at Christmas time, even if we weren't privy to the details of angels visiting and shepherds, uh, seeing angels in the heavens, glory to God in the highest, all of that stuff, even if we didn't know any of that, there would be no mistaking now. This is no mere man who has approached John for baptism. This is no mere human being. Because I've watched a lot of them get baptized, and this ain't that. Here, by the side of the river in the Judean wilderness, the Father and the Spirit testify to the divinity of the Son. This is the Trinity on display in full, full accord. You ever noticed that before? 
the, you have Jesus here for baptism. You have the Spirit descending on him like a dove. You have the Father proclaiming, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. You have one God in three persons on display in a beautiful picture to a watching world. You know the old joke about, have you ever actually seen them all in the same room at the same time? Well, this is all the members of the Trinity in the same room at the same time. This isn't a God just changing hats. Sometimes He's the Father. Sometimes No, this is the God creator of the universe. The Son given for our redemption. The Spirit who dwells in and empowers us on display. All designed to proclaim the divinity and the glory of this man, Jesus Christ. So what does Luke want us to know when we look at Jesus' baptism? He wants wants us to know that, that this Jesus... There, there's, this is not just a man, right? This, this is a window into something beyond our comprehension. This is the God-man given to us. And so his baptism marks the beginning of his public ministry. Luke shifts really quick here in verse 23. It's one of those where when he spends just like three sentences, and then as he began his ministry, he was about 30 years old. I'm like, wait, like, can you tell us some more about that baptism thing? Because... That's kind of crazy. But, but he continues to roll on because Jesus' divinity is not the only reality that he wants us to understand. The fact that Jesus is God is not all we need to know about who Jesus is. And so now Luke begins to give a very human side of things. He says here that Jesus began his ministry and he was about 30 years old. So he's going to talk to us for a bit as he says, okay, this is Jesus coming onto the public stage. Here's who he is from this magnificent divine perspective. Now let me tell you who he is from a human perspective. And first up, he says he's about 30. Again, this feels like a throwaway line. Skip it and you'll miss it. But you ever, you ever think about the significance of that? When I say Jesus was 30 years old, that's very humanizing, isn't it? And if you're like me, a lot of times it can be difficult to think of Jesus as a person, as a man. We think of like this glorious, exalted, divine being that we've just talked about, that Luke has just taken great pain to show us. But it's hard to think about. He was, he was a 30-year-old. He was like one of us. Any 30-year-olds in the room? You don't have to show hands if you don't want to, but Jesus is your age, right? I look back on 30. It doesn't feel like that long ago. Um, but I think that's how old Jesus was when all of the, it just, it, it makes it concrete in your head, doesn't it? This is real. This is a real guy who lived a real life in a real place. He was human. And then Luke gives us Jesus' genealogy, the accounting of his human origins. He goes ancestry.com on us right here and lets us know here's how we got to Jesus. Now, this is the place where you are tempted to check out. Because who wants to read a giant list of 76 names? I did count them. 80% of whom, I have no idea who these people are. 60% of whom, I have no idea how to say them. I I guess with most of those. So what is the benefit in this? When you're doing your through the Bible in a year plan, let's just move along. Like fast forward. I can can like skip today because I don't need to read all these names. Look, don't, don't miss this. Luke includes it for a reason. He wants you to be certain about Christ. He wants you to be certain about who He is. And this is a piece of that. So let's ask, what do we learn here? 
from this list of names? Well, right here in the first line, there's something for us to notice. Jesus was about 30 years old and was thought to be the son of Joseph. Did you catch that? Thought to be the son of Joseph. Think of the implications just in that line alone. Jesus was human. He was the son of a carpenter. He's from a backwater town in Nazareth. People would have watched him grow up. We've seen stories of him at 12 on family trips. He was thought to be the son of Joseph. By all appearances, he was Joseph's kid. But we read the first two chapters of Luke. We know there's more to the story than that, isn't there? There were angels. There were promises. There were songs of delight from Mary. And yet Jesus grew up, God of all the universe, the one whom the heavens just opened for, and he was humbly obedient as he grew up to an earthly father who he actually created. You ever stop and think about that? Like Jesus created his earthly parents. The book of Colossians tells us that he was there in the beginning. Nothing was created apart from him and everything was created through him and for him. And that includes Mary and Joseph. And yet Jesus grew up humbly obedient to them as just another kid. Side note of application for kids, teens in the room. If Jesus was humbly obedient to a stepdad who he actually created in the first place, what does that say to us about how we should obey the parents or step-parents or authority figures in our lives? The humility of Jesus on display. And it has something to say to us. All right, the next thing to notice is something that's worth mentioning, but I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on it. I think you'll see why as we get into it, because you could go super deep with this one. But that's this. This genealogy is different than the one that appears in Matthew's Gospel. So of the four Gospel writers, Matthew and Luke include genealogies. Mark and John do not. Matthew and Luke's genealogies are not the same. And that's a little bit puzzling. I mean, there's a couple changes that are superficial. So like one, Matthew only goes back as far as Abraham. Luke goes all the way back to Adam. Matthew's genealogy is arranged forward, concluding with Jesus. Luke has his genealogy start with Jesus and go backwards from there. But those two changes, like that's differences that, no big deal, right? It's just a different way of arranging things. But more notable is the fact that between David and Jesus, so that would be in Luke's genealogy until you get back to David, the, the people between David and Jesus, that list of names, and the list of names between David and Jesus in Matthew's genealogy are, are very different. Like, almost completely different. They even disagree about the name of Joseph's dad. Like, so Jesus' grandfather is given, we have son of Heli here. Uh, and then if you flip over into Matthew's gospel, we're told that he was the son of, um, I'm missing the name, but it's not Heli. So what do we do with this? Because there, there are a lot of people who will hold this up and say, see, the Bible doesn't know what it's talking about. Which is it? Is it, is it Luke's genealogy that's right? Is it Matthew's genealogy that's right? Did one of them get it wrong? Like, is one of the four Gospels incorrect in its assessment of where Jesus came from? So if that's a question that's troubling to you, I'd love to sit down and talk about it in great detail. For our purposes this morning, rather than going on a massive rabbit trail, let me just say this. There are some perfectly reasonable reasons for what the differences are. And perhaps the most likely reason 
And what I'm going to suggest to you today is that Luke is actually giving us Mary's lineage, whereas Matthew gave us Joseph's. And you say, well, that doesn't make any sense, because right here it says, son of Joseph, son of Heli, and back from there. But I want you to, to put yourself in the culture that the Bible was written in here. In the event that Mary had no brothers, we don't know this to be true, but it's certainly perfectly plausible. If Mary had no brothers, the tradition of the day would have been for Mary's father to adopt Joseph as his legal son and the family's heir. And so for all intents and legal purposes, Joseph would have been reckoned the son of Heli, who was actually Mary's father. And then Joseph and Mary would have inherited the family estate or whatever came with that title as the firstborn. And so from that perspective, that would account for why Mary and Joseph would have been from the same tribe, the same uh, family tree in Judah from a broad sense, the same clan, which would explain why up until we get to David, things line up, but then once you get outside of the line of David, they go in two very different directions before meeting back here in the person of Jesus. So that's my quick answer to why these are different. If you want to talk more, you got questions, hey, I'd be happy to. We can get some coffee and talk about all these names and all the fun stuff. But for our purposes this morning, the lineage goes back from Joseph to Heli to Mathat to Levi and on and on and on, line after line after line, back it goes. And you know what it's full of, like from beginning to end? People. 76 people. And people, you, you are one, right? You've met a few in your life. We are a messy and interesting lot, are we not? Jesus was a man. He was 30 years old. He had a grandfather. He had a great-grandfather. He had a family history. And like my family history, and like your family history, and like all humanity's history, it was a history full of proud highs and embarrassing lows. A lot of these names are lost to history. I couldn't tell you the first thing about them other than they appear right here. But, but some of these names we do know something about as we trace our way back. We know Jesus was a son of Zerubbabel. He pops up about a third of the way through here. Zerubbabel, the book of Haggai, tells us, was a descendant of King David who led the people of Israel back to the promised land after their exile and was one of the ones involved in rebuilding Solomon's temple. Yet Zerubbabel also never fulfilled the people's expectation of independence and kingship that came with his family line. At his death, the people of Israel were still subject to foreign rule, foreign power, not in control of their own promised land. Jesus was the son of David. David, man after God's own heart, great king of Israel, renowned warrior and poet, and the man who had a loyal soldier killed so he could take his wife, who he was having an affair with, as his own. Jesus was a son of Judah. Judah, one of the, the twelve sons of Jacob, leader among the sons of Jacob, father of the Israelite kings and the man at the center of one of the most sordid and shameful stories of family and sexual dysfunction in all the Bible in Genesis 38. He was a son of Abraham, right? The father of the Israelite nation. This pagan moon worshiper who God plucked and said, you're going to be the father of my people. You are going to 
come from you is going to be a, a nation through whom all the people of the world will be blessed. And Abraham was also the man whose lack of trust in God and shameful treatment of a servant girl set in motion the longest-running geopolitical conflict in human history. Jesus was the son of Noah, righteous man in a dark world whom God used to preserve the human race through judgment, and who later had a drunken, scandalous incident that wouldn't feel out of place on TMZ. And Jesus was a son of Adam who walked with God side by side in the garden, enjoying a closer communion and relationship with God than any human being in the history of the planet, yet plunged all of humanity into guilt and grief in his rebellion against God. Jesus was a son of all of them. Jesus was human and everything that comes along with it. And yet none of this negates the divinity that Luke presented to us earlier on. None of this cuts Jesus off from being the one whom the heavens opened, the dove descended, the Father spoke. Jesus is us. He is human like us. He came from the best of us. He came from the worst of us. Our proudest achievements, our most shameful secrets. His ancestors were devout people of God and some of the most worthless, wicked scoundrels you can imagine. He was the consummation of centuries of prophecies and yet generally reckoned to be the illegitimate son of a blue-collar worker from a backwater nowhere town. He is us, but he's the true and better us. The song that we just sang moments ago, he's the true and better Adam. He's the true and better Isaac. He's the true and better Moses. He's the true and better David. He is what all of them should have been. He is what all of us should have been. The divine and the human in one package. Facing all of the same mess that we face. And yet not falling. Not yielding. Not crumbling before sin and guilt and shame the way every single one of us has. Hebrews 4.15 reminds us of the kind of God we serve, reminds us of the kind of Savior we follow. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. He is one of us, but he has overcome in a way that none of us ever have. He's divine. He's human. All in one. In fact, Luke alludes to this in the way he closes his genealogy. Verse 38. Jesus is son of Enos, son of Seth, son of Adam, son of God. Now, on the one hand, you might think, well, we can't read too much into that because Adam was directly created by God, so we could all trace ourselves back to Adam. So shouldn't, couldn't you say this of absolutely anyone? And yeah, on that level, you could. You could finish anybody's genealogy with Son of God. But nobody ever did that. If you read through all of the Old Testament, if you read through all of the rabbinic literature of the time from Jewish writers and teachers, there is not one instance in all of that recorded literature of a genealogy ever beginning or ending with the name of God, except this one. Kent Hughes, a pastor and scholar, says this ending is one of a kind. There's no parallel in the Old Testament 
or rabbinic text for a genealogy to begin or end with the name of God. Jesus is just like us, except that he's not. He's human like us. He shares our flesh, our humanity, our story. But he has been written into the story to change it forever. So, who is he? Well, Luke wants us to be certain from the the verses we read this morning of two things, that he is divine and he's human. Fully God, fully man at the same time. So the question is, why, why does it matter, right? As you get ready to walk out the door from here and go about your day and go about your week and go about your life, what does it matter to you and me that Jesus is fully God and fully man? And I would say to you, it's because it's only in the combination of those two realities, his perfect divinity and his full humanity, that we have any hope of real redemption. This is, this is what we've got. Because humanity has made an absolute hash of things. Turn on the news this afternoon. Spend about 30 seconds on Twitter. Ask someone who you meet today to tell you some stories about their life, and you will very quickly be confronted with the inescapable fact that we have made a mess. And we haven't just made a mess in the global, like, yeah, the world, I wish the world were a better place. It's broken. It needs fixed. We've also made a mess personally, every single one of us. We all have things that bring us deep shame. We carry guilt over things we've done and said in the past, people that we've hurt, relationships that we've ruined. We all think things that we would be horrified if anyone else could see inside our brain and know what's going on in there. We've all failed to live up to the moral code that we expect other people to live up to, let alone the standard that God has given for us. You ever stop and think, if if God were to judge all of us only on the the, the standard we expect other people to live up to, we would be in bad shape. Like None of us can even fulfill that, let alone the standards that we find in the Bible that Jesus fulfilled for us. And yet we're powerless to fix it. It ain't getting any better out there. Despite our education, despite our technology, despite our wealth, we're powerless to fix the world. And despite all our do-better, try-harder efforts, we're powerless to fix ourselves. How many of you made a New Year's resolution three weeks ago that's in the trash can right now? It's been three weeks. Our efforts have limits. Our good intentions can only carry us so far. And the world is full of religions offering the divine. But they're too distant. They're too out there. I can't have that kind of devotion. I can't have that kind of righteousness. I'm never going to make it. Enter Jesus. The perfect God of all the universe that walked the dirty streets with us. Living among us willingly taking on my guilt and shame, your guilt and shame, bearing the full weight of the wrath that even the worst of us deserve. That is the message we call the gospel. That is good news. Kent Hughes, that same pastor I referenced earlier, said, Jesus exercises his perfect eternal sonship as he takes on Adam's and our flawed sonship. And therefore, He can redeem it. 
Tommy referenced a text earlier today that is one of several in the New Testament that allude to this fact that because Jesus is the true and better Adam, he has the power to undo everything the first Adam did. 1 Corinthians 15, 21 through 22. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. 1 Corinthians 15, 45. So it is written, the first Adam became a living being, the last Adam a life-giving spirit. And Romans 5, 17. If by the one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive the overflow of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Plainly put, because of who Jesus is, everything about who you are can change. Everything. Jesus in Matthew eleven twenty eight gave us the, this invitation. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Those are his words. The God of all the universe walking the earth said that. That's not a preacher's imagination coming up with this stuff. That is his offer. If you're weary and burdened, come and you will find rest with him. Come to him. Bring everything you've got. Good, bad, and ugly. Every burden, every guilt, every shame. Because he is human, he can sympathize with every last ounce of it. He understands what it's like to walk in your shoes. But because he is God, he can deal with it. He can carry it. He can erase it forever and offer life in its place. Because of who he is, who we are is fundamentally changed. And he will never let you down. I said at the beginning that we all have to answer those four big questions that affect everything about our lives. But because of who He is, I can answer them in a fundamentally different way. Who am I? I'm the creation of the God of the universe. A rebellious failure? Sure. But so loved by Him that He entered into this world to rescue me, make me His own. That's who I am. Where did I come from? I was created with loving purpose by my Father. And though I've ran from Him and tried to stubbornly, stubbornly live my life, my way, that past doesn't have to define me anymore. Because He's run out to meet me right here in the thick of it. Where am I going? I'm going to live with Him forever. I'm going to see this amazing, beautiful, wonderful, messy universe remade and perfected the way it was intended to be from the beginning. And then I'm going to spend an eternity exploring it and soaking in every last moment. And I will do so as a co-heir, a brother, a friend of Jesus Christ. Every blessing of His that He has received from His Father, He will freely share with me forever. And why does it matter? Because it is what I was made for. Every desire, every longing, every expectation, every hope, every yearning, every good thing I could ever imagine will find its fulfillment in Him. Because of who He is, that's who I am. And so I ask you one more time this morning. Who are you? Who are you? Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. 
Thank you for a story. A story worth telling. Thank you for writing yourself into the mess of our lives. Into our sin and our shame. Thank you for offering redemption and hope and a future. Thank you for Jesus. God, I pray this morning that as we're confronted with him, change who we are. Whether for the first time, if there's someone here who has never wrestled with this question, who has never been confronted with the reality of who Jesus is, God, open their eyes this morning to see you can change anything. And you will. And God, for those of us who have walked with you, remind us. Remind us of the power that is present with us that we leave in our backpack far too often. Help us to see Make your word live to us that we might display Jesus to these 13 streets, to this town, to this world that you have placed us in, knowing that we don't go in our own power. We go in the name of Jesus Christ. God, as we reflect, worship, pray, do your work among us this morning. And let us go out these doors different than we came in. By your grace, in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Hey, Josiah again. Thanks for joining us at the canteen and listening to this week's message. We hope it was helpful to you and that you were encouraged and challenged as we set out this week to walk the walk of faith together. If you're a part of Christ community, let's consider how we can practically apply this into our lives this week as we go outside to be the church. If you're not a member of Christ community, we're so glad that you joined us, and we hope that this message was helpful to you as well. If you're in the Shelbyville area, we'd love to have you come out and join us. But wherever you are, find a local church, get plugged in, and experience Christian community as it was designed to be. Thanks for joining us this week. Grab your backpack, and we'll see you on the trail. Thanks for listening to The Backpack, a production of Christ Community Church. The Backpack is hosted by DJ Williams, Daniel Bright, and Josiah Ward. You can learn more about Christ Community Church at loveshelbyville.com.